Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week on the show, we have John Randolph, who's The House in the Garden, The Bakunin Family, and The Romance of Russian Idealism, has just appeared from Cornell University Press. I've known John for many years. Uh, He is a distinguished historian of Imperial Russia, and he teaches at the uh, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Um, the book's a fantastic read for those of you interested in intellectual history and the history of the Russian intelligentsia in particular. I enjoyed talking to John, and I hope that you enjoy listening to our discussion. Here it is. Hi, John. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty well. Um, today we have John Randolph on the show. Uh, I've known John for years. Um, and he has recently published a book called The House in the Garden about the Bakunin family, the Bakunin family and the romance of Russian idealism. And so uh, we were very excited to talk to John today about the book and uh, more generally just kind of for me to reacquaint myself with him because I, have, I don't think we've talked for, gosh, it's been five or six years, has it? Several years, I think. It's been a while, yeah. I've kind of been out of circulation myself. So, John, in our customary fashion, if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and how you became interested in history and Russia in particular, I'm sure that the listeners would be happy to hear that. So go ahead. Well, uh, as uh, as often asked, I don't have any Russian blood. That's what I'm <laughs> in Russia. They you know, say, well, I, I get, I you get Russian? Yeah, I get asked yep. that too, and I don't. I never heard a Russian speaker until I got to college. I, I just <laughs> never did. I didn't read anything about Russia. I just, like, I don't know exactly, but yeah. That's more or less my background. I grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia. My father was a mathematician and worked for the West Virginia University. Uh-huh. Um, and... Uh, really had nothing to do with Russia. I remember there was a book on my grandmother's coffee table for years, a book of Russian icons that she had somehow picked up at an exhibit or something. I think if there's any kind of trace element in my childhood of Russia, that is that book. Um, Yeah. Uh, but I don't remember reading it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it, it had some sort of ambient influence on you. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, more important, though, is that we actually moved around quite a bit when I was in high school, and history was always the subject that, for some reason or other, was an elective. It was something that I did not have to take, and there were other requirements I had to take. So my high school education was pretty much a, a historical blank spot. Uh-huh. And I think for that reason, when I got to college, I knew I wanted to study history. I thought it was going to be fascinating, and I, I did find it fascinating. Um, and gradually got around to the idea that I, I wanted to maybe try to become a professional historian. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, how Russia entered the picture was the, the college that I went to, which was uh, Carleton College in Minnesota, uh-huh. um, required a foreign language. Yep. And, uh, I had had French in high school uh, and was kind of tired of it. Um, and I initially enrolled in Japanese, but the instructor, uh, I didn't find uh, the instructor very good. And then there was an extremely charismatic 
language instructor there, or there, still there, I think, Professor Diane Nemishudnashev. Mm-hmm. Um, and I immediately gravitated towards taking Russian. So I dropped Japanese, started to take Russian. And as you know, late 80s were a time when uh, all of a sudden it seemed like Russian history was opening up and there were going to be opportunities to study things which mm-hmm. had never been studied before. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's how those two things came together. I realized that I, I really enjoyed Russian and that this was a field of great opportunity. Um, and I went to Russia actually in 1987 for the first time, um, lived in Krasnodar, which mm-hmm. your listeners may not be familiar yeah, with. No, I don't think they are. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a city, a major city, over a million people, um, down towards uh, the area called New Russia, which is the part of Russia just above the Caucasus Mountains. Uh-huh. Called New Russia because it was brought into Russia in the 18th century. But um, And how did you end up in Krasnodar? I, I mean, that's a, uh, kind of an unusual place to land. Yeah, the, the Associated Colleges of the Midwest, of which Carlton is a part, and so, had a language and, program there. And so, yep. was, so was my alma mater, Grinnell College. I thought I'd yeah. plug in for that. Yes, ACM schools. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So uh, they had just opened a, 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 um, a new program. We were actually the first group to go on that program, and we were told that we were going to be able to stay in student dorms at Crescentar State University. Uh-huh. Uh, but when they got there, of course, uh, they put us in the in-tourist hotel, right, the yeah. hotel for foreigners, yeah. uh, where we stayed. And I, um, you know, even though it was high, sort of a height of perestroika in '87, uh, Krasnodar was still very conservative, uh, very party-controlled place. And actually, I, imagine, yeah. uh, I tried to work with a local youth theater. We we did a translation of a play by Sam Shepard. Uh-huh. And while I was working with them, they tried to open a disco. Uh, <laughs> Which was closed for cosmopolitanism. Yeah. So as soon as you know, Human Nature by Michael Jackson came on, yeah. out came the apparatchik, right. down came the disco. That's a good story. Um, so I went to Russia in '87. I went again uh, after I graduated from college for a year on another exchange program, uh-huh. and then I went to grad school at uh, UC Berkeley uh-huh. uh, in in late modern European history with a focus in uh, Russian history. Uh-huh. Uh, and there, uh, my supervisor was your old mentor, the late right. uh, and uh, incredibly wonderful Reginald E. Zelnick, yeah. um, as well as Nikolas Rodanovsky mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, Professor Irina Preparano of mm-hmm. the uh, Slavic Department. Yeah. Um, I worked quite closely with as well. Uh, and uh, it was during graduate school then that I got interested in the Bakunin family and uh-huh. decided to write my dissertation about them. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and how did the topic I'll, come up? I, you know, I, I, I can't say that I, uh, in my many years of Russian history, have ever really thought a lot about. I thought a lot about Bakunin, but never a lot about the Bakunin family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I'm typical in that way. Well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, you know, it's interesting um, how books come together and then how what they actually are about are actually two incredibly different things. Um, so you, you sort of start a project based on one set of assumptions, and oftentimes by the time you finish it, it seems that the book is a completely different kind of book. Um, and, but in my case, I think that sort of the, the seed from which it grew was simply that I, I, I took a seminar which was about um, uh, personal documents mm-hmm. in Russian history. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I think that has long fascinated people about uh, Russian history, Russian culture, especially modern Russian culture, is what we might call the immense intimacy of intellectual life mm-hmm. in the imperial period. Mm-hmm. 
for various reasons, which actually become a subject of the book I eventually write, we are able to really eavesdrop and witness the intimate intellectual evolution of people who become incredible, uh, both Russian and international figures, people mm-hmm. like the social critic Vissarion Belinsky, mm-hmm. who is the father of Russian realism, or mm-hmm. uh, Mikhail Bakunin, who is the central figure in my book as well, mm-hmm. uh, leader of international anarchism, mm-hmm. one of the uh, really the greatest Russian celebrities of the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, Alexander Herzen. Mm-hmm. Um, these, the socialists, we, these are people that we, we um, have strikingly intimate portraits of. And I guess I became fascinated simply sort of with the question, of why is that? And what produces this incredibly rich and culturally charismatic field of private life? Um, and how do we explain that? Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that immediately became apparent was that the Bakunin family had a gigantic archive, uh, a family archive, Mm-hmm. Uh, which was uh, impeccably uh, preserved from about 1780 on mm-hmm. through the revolution, through 1917, that had been uh, personally safeguarded by the family's private historian, uh, a leader of the cadet party, a man named Alexander Kornilov, mm-hmm. uh, during the revolution, and really? then uh, turned over by Kornilov to um, Pushkin House, uh-huh. which is an institute in St. Petersburg, yeah. the study of Russian literature, which was created to be the kind of, uh, uh, actually the term was really used, mausoleum <laughs> of, of Pushkiniana. <laughs> All the documents having to do with Pushkin were there. Yeah. And then it sort of naturally became the broader archive of what you might think of as imperial Russian literary life. Uh-huh. Um, and so Kornilov's widow, upon his death in 1924, turned the Bakunin family papers uh, which are several thousand pages of manuscripts, thousands of letters, personal projects, diaries, uh, 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 all kinds of family documents, uh-huh. albums, this sort of thing, sketches, over to Pushkin House. And as I looked into it, it became apparent to me that although Mikhail Bakunin, you know, one, this, this one a member of the family, although his personal papers had long ago been published, mm-hmm. Really, nothing else had, mm-hmm. uh, and it was very striking to me. Uh, and it actually, to this day, is still somewhat striking to me that you know, here I am, an American graduate student who really doesn't know anything about Russia or, or Russian. Uh, and uh, there's an opportunity in 1994 for me to become one of the only people who has ever looked through this entire immense archive and studied it carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you think about, I don't know, the personal papers, I don't know who the equivalent American figure might be, but it might be like Emerson, you know, mm-hmm. like the Emerson family papers. I don't know if they exist. I don't know yet. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the family papers are some major figure. You, you would think that these would be things that have been looked over by generations of scholars. Yeah, you would. Uh, but in Bakunin, the case of the Bakunin family papers, I think largely for political reasons. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why do you think that they were neglected in that way? I think they were neglected um, partly because, in general, as you know, the, the Soviet Union was kind of suspicious about the kind of broad, wandering archival access that it, that it takes to be able to look at, you know, thousands of items. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it was, it was a time when, when you wanted something from an archive, you had to list, you know, the specific one, two, three, four, five things you wanted, and you yeah. get so many a day. Yeah, they, they didn't like fishing expeditions. That's what they I remember. Not like they, fishing yeah, they didn't like at that all. at all, no. So, you know, on the one hand, there's that. 
and uh, you know, I should say I didn't get a fishing expedition either. But it, the mid '90s were a kind of more liberal era. It was definitely possible to get more kinds of things. And also, the second thing was ideological. Um, during, after a sort of brief moment when uh, some leaders of the Bolshevik Party considered making Kirill Bakunin a sort of patron saint, patron saint of Russian radicalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was eventually kind of rejected by the Stalinist mainstream as mm -hmm. an, he was figured, and this is true actually, of course, that he was an opponent of Marx, right. and that he inspired petty socialism as opposed to disciplined Bolsheviks, yep. uh, uh, and that he was not a true communist, and in point of fact, he was anti-revolutionary, you know, yep. he had all those kinds of double-think uh, mm -hmm. expressions. And I think because of that, it was also, you know, it, it was probably a presumption for a very long time that if you're looking into the Bakunin family archive, you're either uh, trying to, you're either nostalgic for the old nobility, which is, you know, horrible. And uh, that, that would be bad. Yeah. You're, uh, yeah. Or you're uh, a crypto-Menshevik. Even worse. Yeah, yeah, even, even worse. worse. Yeah. So, so it's a lose-lose situation for anybody going into that archive. Exactly. Yeah. That, and, you know, I, I should immediately bracket this by saying that's all speculation because yep. I, I, I've seen no paper trail that says that this is the reason. But I, I think that probably helps explain it, uh, or at least part of it. Um, and I, I would say the final thing that explains this is just perhaps uh, a lingering prejudice against the idea that uh, family life is a historical phenomenon that deserves its own analysis and this yeah. vision, the subject of history is public life, public actors, what, right. they, you know, what they did in universities, what they did mm -hmm. in concert halls, what they did on the street, mm -hmm. what they did in Pumas, you know, parliaments, mm -hmm. uh, but not necessarily what happened uh, behind the closed doors of family life. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be the last thing that, yeah. that prevented that kind of scrutiny or discouraged it. And yeah, I think for whatever right. reason, any, it just basically didn't happen. Um, uh -huh. So then when I saw that, I thought, okay, well, here's a good topic for me. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah. So had anybody else worked? At, so you say almost nobody had worked in this um, archive before. Was there a... I, the reason I ask this is I remember I've been to the archives for a while, but uh, they have these sign-in sheets that tell you who's looked at what. Sure. Did you look at those? I mean, was there any... It was just blank? No, 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 no. I mean, there were... You know, the, the archive was, you know, it had been in Pushkin House by something like... Uh, for something like 70 years when uh -huh. I saw it. Yeah. Uh, and there had been people who had worked on it before, uh, you know, most notably the archivists themselves, uh -huh. who, you know, processed it. Right. And, uh, but also individual researchers. But what I would say is that by and large, people tended to use it kind of as a, a, a card catalog, you know, so that, you know, for example, if you uh, were interested in the Bakunin family, you, you're interested in, say, the biography of Ivan Turgenev, the novelist. Uh -huh. Um, you might, and you knew that Turgenev was a friend of the Bakunins, as, he, as indeed he was, you might go to the archive and look just at his letters. Uh -huh. So you, you, it, 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 it was sort of more limited, targeted kinds of inquiries, mm -hmm. which again were the kind of things that the Soviet scholarship encouraged because of the, right. you know, by and large, the, mm -hmm. the ban on what you call fishing expeditions. Exactly, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So it would be more targeted, you know, or you know, some specific document might get published, but then... What I was able to do, uh, and I remain profoundly grateful to the archivist of Pushkin House who was helping me doing this, is um, I was able to sit there basically for a year and mm -hmm. read as many of the letters as I could and sort of, again, kind of wander through the archives, look at, consider its structure as a whole, look at specific moments, reconstruct 
you know, conversations by mail uh, over mm-hmm. time uh, in a kind of systematic way. Mm-hmm. And that uh, then uh, made me think that as opposed to a more targeted kind of research, I could actually tell a, a multi-generational story. Mm-hmm, which you do. So why don't we turn directly to the book now and um, just tell us about it, if you could, in a, kind of a few paragraphs. Mm, yeah, sure. Um, like I said, it's called The House in the Garden, The Bakunin Family and the Romance of Russian Idealism. That was Cornell University Press. Um, what it is is a study of the interconnections between uh, noble family life and uh, intellectual life in Imperial Russia from about 1780 uh, to 1840. And I guess the central problem, on the one hand, it's a narrative of the family. It tells about how the family, the Bakunins, who heretofore uh, had lived in St. Petersburg primarily, um, how they, in 1779, purchased a house uh, at an estate called Primuchina, uh, Primuchina, uh which is uh, just about uh, 270 miles to the south and east of St. Petersburg. It's sort of halfway on the road to Moscow. Yeah. Kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's mm-hmm. not far from the ancient Russian city of Tver, but uh, it's itself is a relatively small village, a surf village. Mm-hmm. They purchased that village, they moved there, and then my book is a story essentially of what happens to them after they move there and through the, the early 19th century. Uh, sort of the, 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 the daily life of the family, the, the mm-hmm. development over that time. Mm-hmm. So, at one level, it's a biography, and at another level, I guess it's my attempt to answer that question which I sort of raised somewhat earlier, uh, and that is, why is it we have this extraordinary culture, intimate culture of intellectual life in Imperial Russia in the early 19th century? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, probably, again, what I mean by that is, when we think of the genesis of modern Russian art, literature, politics, philosophy, uh, we're likely to think of charismatic personalities. Um, and, of course, that in and of itself isn't unusual. I mean, most histories are still... Uh, at a sort of guttural level, they're kind of biographies. We think of geniuses. Yep. Um, but what's interesting about these Russian thinkers, uh, as they're often called, is that they achieve their status as uh, leaders of the nation, as charismatic expressions of the spirit, of, of uh, as um, uh, uh, the vanguard of intellectual development, not on the stage of public life necessarily, not in universities, mm-hmm. not in concert halls, theaters, journals, uh, certainly not in Parliament, of course, because Russia didn't have one um, <laughs> but at the time. <laughs> uh, but rather, we, we kind of end up eavesdropping on them in their intimate moments um, in uh, smoky student circles mm-hmm. or in salons or, uh, or in the gardens of country houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I guess it's sort of a, a evidence and example of this, what I would just mention is you know, uh, perhaps the, the biggest um, explosion of, of uh, Russian culture into the American consciousness recently was the Broadway production of Coast of Utopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom the British playwright, sure. uh, has a, a trilogy history of the Russian intelligentsia, especially mm-hmm. of Russian life. Um, uh, and uh, what's interesting about that drama is that it's basically called from all we know from historical researches into the biographies of Russian thinkers. And again, all of it takes place in very intimate settings. Mm-hmm. And indeed, actually, the first act, the first play, uh, which was 
not, I think, uh, uh, which was in, in many respects the most favorably received of the three plays. It's called Voyage. Opens on the Bakunin's veranda at Tribuchina. Is that right? So, yeah. Huh. It opens with a scene of the Bakunin family life. And again, this is supposed to symbolize a certain moment in Russian life and the development of the Russian spirit uh-huh. uh, and Russian thought. And so, again, I guess what I've been fascinated by and what I try to sort of make a theme of this biography across the book is why is that? How is that we get this charismatic, intimate tradition of intellectual life, which uh, informs and also supports the historical reputations of the people who we really think of as the movers and shakers of uh-huh. modern Russian history, uh-huh. Uh-huh. or at least until very recently, until the 1990s, were generally thought of as the mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, there's been a whole imperial turn, and one of the big uh, uh, explosions in Russian historical writing in the 1990s was to say, now, wait a minute, you know, the, the, and it's not just the 1990s, it's also the social history of the 70s and 80s, but it is, now, wait a minute, you know, Russia isn't just a select coterie of thinkers, mm-hmm. thought great thoughts in their gardens. Mm-hmm. It's also workers, it's also <laughs> imperial people, mm-hmm. it's the world's largest country. How can you symbolize yeah. the world's <laughs> largest country from a veranda? <laughs> uh-huh. No, it's a good point. Yeah. Um, and I agree with all of those points, but I uh, nonetheless wanted to explore why, how, what was the platform that Prime uh-huh. Night afforded for these people? Uh-huh. How, did, was this, uh, how did it become such an important area of historical activity? Despite the fact that actually, of course, in Russia, as I said, as elsewhere, there's often a prejudice against thinking of family life sure. as a theater of historical activity. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so that's kind of that. That was the big historiographical theme I was looking at. Um, um, before I ask you to uh, answer answer that big question, uh, let's actually take the Bakunin family from wherever they came from to uh-huh, sure. Primukhina. Why did they? Where did they come from, and why did they move there? <laughs> well. As you know, uh, Russian elites, like elites all across Europe, uh, tended to like to make up uh, mythical stories about their ancestry uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. and to talk about how they descended from foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Bakunin family's legend, and I don't uh, don't know if it's true, and, uh, was not, and it could be true, I don't want to be too skeptical about it, but their legend is that they descended from the princely house of Bathory, uh, uh, that they came to Russia from Transylvania mm-hmm. uh, in the late 1490s and served in the court of the Tsar Ivan III, mm-hmm. also known in Russian history as Ivan the Great, mm-hmm. the great uniter of, of, of Russian principalities, conqueror of other Russian mm-hmm. principalities from Moscow. Um, uh, so they they claimed a, a kind of a royal descent when you think about it, but what, who they actually were throughout most of the 1500s and 1600s were they were uh, Russian uh, provincial servitors and militiamen in and around the ancient Russian town of Yaroslavl, mm-hmm. uh, which is the central sort of northeastern Russian town. Mm-hmm. Um, they owned serfs, they were serf lords, they were cavalrymen, mm-hmm. uh, they were not particularly distinguished, uh, and perhaps most sort of tellingly from my point of view, they left us absolutely zero personal documents. It's, it's almost impossible to describe the emotional life yep. of anyone in Russia before about uh, 1750. It's tough. And, and, <laughs> uh, 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 and the are no exception. Yeah. I realize that's a broad generalization. Oh, no, it's pretty much true. <laughs> if you think about it, you know, there aren't memoirs, there aren't diaries, no. there aren't personal letters, there aren't any of that stuff. Yeah, no. And, and the Bakunins are no exception. 
Yeah, I would say I would say actually there are some. It's just they don't contain the kind of information you're talking about. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah there, there's, what, there's, what kind of sources are you thinking about? Well, I was just thinking that um, you know I have a friend, Boris Nikolaevich Morozov, who literally uh-huh. collects these things for the 17th century, and they're almost right. always land documents. Uh, right. They, they, right. They consist of very little else other than, you know, say for example, uh, excerpts from service registers. Which are right. basically receipts for services offered. In other words, if the tax collector comes and says you didn't serve, well, you can show them this thing and say, well, I did serve. So, but you're absolutely right. They wrote no diaries. They wrote very few letters. They just didn't uh, produce the kind of um, first-person introspective items that were extraordinarily common, actually, by the 17th century in Western Europe. But exactly, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I mean, we can reconstruct, you know, where they lived, their service careers, how much. Sometimes how much land they owned, how many mm-hmm. serves, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. on yeah. the service ladder, mm-hmm. the men. <laughs> yeah, no, that's For right. women, you know, it, it gets even more difficult yeah. uh, by and large. But um, well, the Bakunins were part of that world. Um, and then what happened in the late 1600s uh, uh, during, uh, uh, during the reign of Peter the Great, uh, died in 1725, is that they entered... Uh, the new world of the Russian nobility that Peter was creating uh-huh. in St. Petersburg. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they became part of his um, uh, mission to Russia, broadly speaking, of, of, of creating a class of servitors who were educated mm-hmm. in European technical skills, mm-hmm. things like mathematics and artillery and all that, mm-hmm. um, and then also of people who, by their comportment, their dress, their society, the way they talk, illustrated what Peter presented as the uh, more powerful, uh, the uh, more progressive in some broad sense, more enlightened, perhaps is the better word, culture of Europe that mm-hmm. he was trying to bring into um, into Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, from that point, uh, they... Uh, uh, advance very rapidly up that new St. Petersburg service ladder and mm-hmm. become prominent in a way they never had before. Mikhail mm-hmm. um, Bakunin's great-grandfather was the commander of a garrison along the Volga, mm-hmm. uh, but also a very uh, elite servitor who did ethnographies of the Kalmyk and Kabardini mm-hmm. peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, his son, who then would be Mikhail Bakunin's grandfather, mm-hmm. um, uh, Mikhail Vasilievich Bakunin uh, and his brothers were all very high-level servitors in St. Petersburg itself, and, mm-hmm. and we actually have personal portraits of them mm-hmm. in wigs, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dressed uh, like uh, Thomas Jefferson, well, not quite like Thomas Jefferson, right. but it's, you know, the common sort of cloth of 18th century uh, male fashion. Uh-huh. Um, now, are all these people being sent to Europe for finishing? Are they are they sent to Europe for education and you know, sort of language training and that kind of thing, or are they trained in Russia? Uh, not yet. They haven't yet been sent abroad to go to Europe. Uh, that actually happens with Mikhail Bakunin's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're very involved in the diplomatic corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, Mikhail Bakunin's great uncle, uh, a man named Pyotr Vasilievich Bakunin, uh, the younger, because there are actually two Pyotr Vasilieviches mm-hmm. generation. But the younger one was the right-hand man of uh, Count Nikita Panyan, who was the sure. head of European diplomacy, or Russian diplomacy under Catherine. Uh-huh. And then after Panyan fell, Bakunin, uh, Pyotr Vasilievich, uh, 
managed to survive that particular catastrophe and become the right-hand man of Panin's successor, Alexander Bezbarotka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So he sort of kept a very high profile, <laughs> um, largely, as it turns out, because he um, was very famous for having a very good pen. Mm-hmm. He was famous as being the kind of person, the kind of bureaucrat, who if you if you came to him and you said, you know, uh, here's this problem, can you write it up for me? He would do it in a very appropriate, beautiful style. He would be basically the kind of bureaucrat who could create the perfect bureaucratic document. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was an invaluable skill, of course. And still is. <laughs> and still is. And still is. Uh, but interestingly enough, despite being famous for, for having a very good pen, he also left nothing personal about him. Huh. Behind him, there's no diary. He owned. A, he had a, a very famous house in St. Petersburg. Uh, he had a domestic theater there uh, that was important yeah. sponsoring mm-hmm. of opera and ballet. Mm-hmm. But uh, we know nothing about the intimate life of Piotr Vasilievich. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in contrast to actually the family of his brother, then Mikhail Bukunin's grandfather, uh, Mikhail Vasilievich, who, ironically, Mikhail Vasilievich, the one who eventually purchases Primuhina. Is known in the family as kind of um, uh, a provincial. Um, uh, I don't want to blacken his reputation too much, but let's say a provincial liar uh, 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 or a bore. Mm-hmm. He, he was a very uh, gruff kind of guy. He didn't really serve in the diplomatic service. He left it relatively early. He was famous for one time. He was apparently dissatisfied with his driver, and so he. Uh, reached out and grabbed the driver and threw him overboard and took the reins himself. Hmm. Uh, another time, he apparently chased off a group of bandits with a with a fence post that he ripped off the fence <laughs> as they were coming at him. So man, um, yeah, a man who sounds like he has problems with impulse control, as we would say today. <laughs> uh, uh, so not necessarily the height of refinement uh-huh. in family, but yet when he and his family purchased Kumukana, the Bakunins began to generate all kinds of intimate documents, personal letters, all these things we've never had before. And uh-huh. at that point, you begin to be able to write a biography of the family. And so that's really where my story takes off. Right. Why did the documents start then? Well, that is the question I try to come at, and um, uh, I think there are multiple answers. It's an interesting Um, question. I mean, silent for so long, and all of a sudden they start to write, and not just write, but write in torrents. uh Exactly. I I mean, I think the first thing you try to eliminate as a historian is, you know, was there some accident? Did, you know, everything before... 1780 catch on fire and that's what we yeah, exactly um, <laughs> and as far as I can tell the answer to that question is no um, both because in general as we already mentioned there's really no precedence for this sort of thing so it's, it's not like we would expect them in the 1600s or 1700s to have had this kind of material right because um, nobody else did. No, we wouldn't. Really. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We wouldn't expect it. Um, so that, and then also there, another argument against it is just the extraordinary preservation of the archive itself, as I mentioned. Um, it has it, more or less what we have has more or less survived whole and was very carefully cared for by the Bakunins right up until 1917 or, or thereabouts, and and then uh, very faithfully transferred from there by their own family historian, the Pushkin House, which is lovingly maintained at since. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this is not an archive, uh, and there's no mention anywhere in the archive of some accident where, you know, something burned down and we lost all the family papers. Um, so I, I think we can kind of rule that out uh, tentatively as an explanation. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that the other explanation is that, um, I mean, there's kind of a twofold explanation. I think the most common explanation is that the genesis, uh, genesis of an intimate culture of private life among the Russian nobility is part of the Europeanization uh, of the nobility that is undertaken by Peter the Great. Mm -hmm. And it's just like that cadre, the, the group, subsection of the nobility to which the uh, uh, Bakunins themselves belong. Mm -hmm. um, so as you adopt European mores, as you adopt European habits, one of the things that begins to enter into your life is the sort of uh, uh, European uh, uh, love of, of, of writing, of, of the mm -hmm. skill of writing, of the uses of writing, and then of the application of writing to all spheres of life, mm -hmm. including one's personal relationships. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most, that would be the most standard explanation. Um, uh, and so from that point of view, it would just be this is a certain evolutionary moment in in the development of, of this new Russian-European Russian culture. Um, but I think for me the most fundamental reason why uh, we have this stuff or that um, this stuff begins to accumulate is simply that the Bakunins themselves are told in many ways um, by the broader imperial culture of which they are a part and begin to believe themselves that it's important uh, to engage in this kind of practice and to preserve this material, that it's part of of who they are as nobles, as and, Russian nobles. Yeah, and why are they why are they told it's important? I guess that's my question. Yeah, well, what I say in the book, and what I believe still. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I've written a lot of things I don't believe anymore. <laughs> uh, I disavow them completely. <laughs> uh, what I say in the book, and I believe still, is that um, uh, the emperors and empresses, and in particular, I have in mind Catherine the Great. Although, to a certain extent, this is true of Peter as well, in, in kind of embryonic form, but I think it really takes flight under Catherine. Every emperors of the 18th century uh, begin to realize that if they are going to extend their vision of civilization out from St. Petersburg in any direction, in any appreciable direction, uh, and, if by do and if they are to mobilize the real full resources of Russia's populations, and in particular its, in its elite population, the serf-holding class of the central Russian provinces. If they're going to mobilize these people in any way, they have to get them uh, to become more willing actors in the project of the empire. Uh -huh. And they have to make them think uh, that they themselves have some voice in it, that they themselves have some stake in it, and then what, furthermore, that what they do in their private lives is part of that grand effort. Uh, it's part of what gives them distinction. In other words, it's part of what makes them noble. Mm -hmm. And it's also part of what connects them to the culture and the power and, of course, the wealth of, of the Russian mm -hmm. capital. And, and we see, and so we, uh, there's a, a famous quote uh, that is cited by the uh, great Russian literary scholar Yuri Lotman, uh, which I think is quite characteristic. Uh, Catherine the Great, as you know, founded many uh, satir or participated in a number of satirical journals mm -hmm. in Russia in the 1760s and 1770s, sort of semi-anonymously yeah. under various kinds of pseudonyms. And there's one exchange where an author writes in and, and uh, he notes that um, Catherine has recently um, 
reaffirmed that Russian nobles have the right not to serve. In other words, they have the right not to be a member of officialdom. They can go off and live private lives in the countryside if they want to, mm -hmm. something that was not really true before her husband's reign. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 this person notes that that's true, and he says, how can you, Empress, allow our nobles to become so lazy? How mm -hmm. can you allow them to exit service? To which Catherine replies, um, uh, to live in society is not to do nothing. Mm -hmm. That there's something valuable about living in society. And I think what she really means by that is that we're going to have people who go out into the countryside who are going to exemplify by mm -hmm. their personal behavior uh, the kind of direction, the kind of a spirit, the animation that we expect from Russian people, the sort of voluntary participation, mm -hmm. kind of uh, eager um, uh, self-direction that we want. So is it, I was going to say, is this a variation on the uh, much-beloved European civilizing mission of the 19th, 18th and 19th century, that is, go into the provinces or empire, depending on what you have, and show the locals how it should be done? Yeah. You know, I think, broadly speaking, yeah, you can say it that way. I mean, it doesn't have the racial connotation. Right. It's not maybe in the, well, I mean, maybe it does, but <laughs> that's, that's not the primary aim of Catherine. I right, would say, yeah. Uh, yet. Um, uh, of, say, you know, the, the white man's burden later. Yeah. Uh, although there are certain racial themes, of course, in imperial Russian culture of the 18th century. But, but that's kind of a longer discussion. But, but I think, really, um, the idea, I think, is, is that... Uh, to really get the most out of the population, you need them to put all of their energy into imperial initiatives. And yeah. there's this whole reservoir of human life, uh, which is family life, uh -huh. uh, which is home life, which mm -hmm. is you know, what you do on your estate. You know, traditionally, the sort of vision had been, well, we'll give the Russian nobles serfs, and the serfs will conduct peasant agriculture and send some of the surplus to their lords, who then will arm themselves and serve in the capital. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the relationship between these villages and their lords. Mm -hmm. And what you know, Catherine's uh, reign does is it signifies and says, well, no, we can actually expect more from serf mm -hmm. agriculture. We can make it more productive, but we can also say that the estate should become kind of a laboratory for the creation of culture. Mm -hmm. You know, from Catherine's point of view, the introduction of civilization exactly. out into Russia. Mm -hmm. And so I think you know, all of these initiatives begin to say to people in many different ways, your, your family life is important. It has a role to play. It is part of what distinguishes you. It is, it is uh, part of what we need from you. Therefore, you need to bring the new culture you have gotten mm -hmm. to bear on it. You have mm -hmm. to not only write bureaucratic documents, you have to write... Uh, instructions to yourself as to how you want to raise your kids. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And you have to keep that. Right, exactly. So uh, we have them in Primuchina now, and they started to write a lot. What did they write? Um, well, the very first document we have, really, that uh, opens a window onto family life is a play that was written to be performed at Primukhina in 1790 uh, by uh, 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 a young woman named Praskovia Mikhailovna Bakunina, uh, sort of, uh, I guess she would be Mikhail Bakunin's aunt. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time she was 14, so she was 
a teenage girl, although the concept teenage girl didn't really exist then, but she was a young woman. Um, and she wrote what she called a prologue to the New Year 1790. Mm-hmm. And in this prologue, she portrays, she imagines how she and her sisters and her brothers, who will be home from service during this period, uh, will cross, dress themselves as peasants mm-hmm. and perform this rustic drama about the charms and um, remarkable virtues of peasant, uh, of family life, rather, in the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what the subject of the play is, it's about a group of angels who come to come to this uh, peasant family, mm-hmm. uh, and they say, we're here to reward you because your life, you know, the, 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 the peaceful relations between husband and wife and your love for your children and your respect for your neighbors and the way you honor your Lord, all of that, um, your, your participation in the hierarchy, <laughs> all of that is virtuous and indeed your life, quote, is an example to others. <laughs> and she has been sent by God to reward those whose lives are an example to others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so the play imagines, first of all, she and her brothers and sisters enacting this drama and playing the angels and playing the peasants. And then at the end of the play, they drop their guys, they become themselves, the Bakunin children, mm-hmm. and they sing a song of, of familial devotion to their parents and their guests. Mm-hmm. But what this does is it, it shows us this culture of imagining family life as a fountain of virtue, as a, a kind of thing that unites all Russians, mm-hmm. peasants, as well as lords, and is something that is admirable, exemplary, and deserves to be imitated. I see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, distinct. And, you know, the, I guess the basic and I think the most important notion here for me is just the idea that family life, again, has a weight, has a value. Is something that needs to be studied, and mm-hmm. consulted, and, and, and imagined. Uh, and here we see the Bakunins really bringing that into their life for the first time in 1790. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and for that reason, it's kind of iconic for me that that's the very first document of family life. It's amazing that she um, would think of writing a, a play. I mean, I, uh-huh. I, I, you know, I just don't. I guess 14-year-olds write novels now. They don't write plays. <laughs> I, they do. I know they do actually, because I. Yeah. Right, but, right, 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 right. Well, I think you know. Why a play? I mean, I think part of the reason the play is that um, uh, this was something they had brought from St. Petersburg, and uh-huh. I mentioned in St. Petersburg, the Bakunin, the larger Bakunin family, had a house where there yeah. was a domestic theater. Domestic theater, right? And it, there was, you know, a part. It was kind of a, a way of saying, you know, here we are in a village of, you know, 300 peasants and us, you know, the uh-huh. 10, 12 members of the Bakunin family living in this manor house, um, but we still have. Uh, the habits that we had in the city. We uh-huh. still do those things that we always did. And um, and also the other thing is that uh, it also speaks to the role of women in family life at the time. Uh-huh. You know, women were expected to be the, en- the entertainers and the muses, the sort of stage arrangers uh-huh. of family life. And so this was uh, a responsibility she took upon herself. Uh-huh. I see. Ever performed? Uh, well, you know, I have no idea if it was ever performed. <laughs> you know, one thing from a script, you can never tell whether or not it was performed. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, maybe we could put it on at the next AAAS. <laughs> you and me and I don't know who else would do it. Yeah, it could be fun. Um, it's, so, not, it's not a gripping drama. Yeah, well, maybe Stoppard would take a whack at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what do you find after the prologue? Well, after the prologue, um, the, the first part of my book is called Hiddle. Um, and what it really studies is a kind of uh, 
the rapid expansion of, of this intimate register of the Kunin family life in the first 20 years of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And here the sort of central hero is uh, Mikhail Bakunin's father, a man named Alexander Mikhailovich Bakunin, who mm-hmm. was born, we think, in 1768 and died in 1854. Uh, and Alexander Mikhailovich Bakunin was uh, uh, probably born in St. Petersburg, that is, before his family moved to the countryside. He was sent at the age of nine to uh, be educated abroad in Europe. He was sent actually uh, to Italy, uh, where he was part of the diplomatic mission to the Kingdom of Sardinia, Mm -hmm. which was headed up in Turin at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a graduate of the University of Padua, Mm -hmm. uh, where he wrote a uh, doctoral dissertation in Latin, Hmm. on intestinal worms. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, so he's sort of being educated to be a translator for the Russian diplomatic service, and he indeed has begun, begun service as an official in the imperial diplomatic mission uh-huh. in Mesopotamia. And then what happens in 1790, almost exactly at the time that his sister is celebrating the wonderful moderate virtues of family life in the countryside, uh-huh. his mother is writing desperate letters yeah. to um, uh, to various protectors in St. Petersburg saying essentially that her husband is uh, ill, that the family is going bankrupt, that at any moment their creditors are going to close in on them and repossess the house, mm-hmm. and that in this context they need their youngest son back from service and that he should be sent home from Italy as fast as he can be. Right, to save the cherry orchard, so to, to say. save the cherry orchard, yeah. exactly. And so lo and behold, he is, he is trucked back to St. Peter's, uh, rather to Primuchina uh, in 1791, Alexander is. He very likely had never been to Primuchina at this point. He returns mm. to it, as it were, yes. to the old man. <laughs> um, and again, he's raised in Italy. He goes back to uh, the heart of peasant Russia, uh-huh. uh, central northern Russia. Uh, and the first thing he does uh, is he goes to a local inn where he writes a desperate letter to a good friend of his in which he says that I've just let blood from both my veins, yeah. <laughs> veins mm-hmm. and my right and left arm, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I've done so because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to go insane from the yeah. despair that right. confronted me when I returned to Primuchina. Poor guy. Yeah. So ironically then, what happens is after this plea really saves the family, he, uh, you know, the, the, the protector in St. Petersburg intervenes and, and helps arrange the debts so that they temporarily go away. Um, Alexander becomes fascinated by family life, and mm-hmm. he takes it upon himself to reform family life and to reconstruct the house and to devote himself to becoming the best of fathers and to raise the best of families and to have the most enlightened relations possible with his serfs mm-hmm. um, and spends really the rest of his life uh, with a few minor exceptions, as a family man in the countryside, something mm-hmm. that he had not been raised for, um, but to which he apply, applied his prodigious talents and also his um, his authority within the family as the eventual head of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, this mm-hmm. life uh, be a space of self-creation, that people feel free to express themselves and to develop themselves. He writes an instruction to himself when his mother dies in 1814, when he becomes head of the household, he writes an instruction to himself, kind of constitution for family life, where he says, I'm going to reject patriarchal authority, <laughs> and I am going to instead convince my children that for where he lives through reason alone. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I think that, yeah, that, that that letter's been written a lot. <laughs> I don't think it's ever actually been carried into practice, but, you know. Well, you know, I think uh, we can talk about this a little further on if we get to it, but, but he, he um, at a very minimum, uh, sparks uh, or, or tried to take this uh, devotion to family life, which we already see in his sister's play, and to really develop it. Yeah. And I think the thing that stands behind it is that he buys into this vision that family life has a weight to offer yep. Russia, that it, that it becomes a way that he sees, he believes, I think, that if you try to live an enlightened private life, that that in turn becomes kind of a laboratory for the mm-hmm. generation of useful social truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that therefore... Eventually, he and his family will have a new kind of distinguished role to play in Russian life. They'll be able to become people who can say that we are an enlightened family. Our experience has been that if you do this, you can be happy. We are sharing this culture with our nation. Yeah, I see. I was going to say, let's get to the point where I, I, was, I was interested in, I mean, you mentioned a kind of laboratory, uh, and uh, laboratory is a good metaphor for this. He, he, he uh, creates an open house but where a, a lot of people drop in. Um, and this is of some significance for later developments. If you could talk a little about that, that would be... Yeah, yeah. Well, um, he's a very tolerant person, um, for the most part. Um, when you get into the archive, of course, there are edges. Um, but, uh, and, uh, but nonetheless, he raises his children uh, in a very open-minded fashion. And in the 1830s, um, he begins to send them off to Moscow. He has 11 children with his wife. Jesus! Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, uh, I mean, I think you know, there's family life as the laboratory for the nation, and then there's family life as the nation. Yeah, exactly. It's a different. <laughs> exactly. Both of these are at work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, they have uh, uh, six sons and five daughters. Uh-huh. Ten survive to adulthood. There's uh-huh. one daughter who dies in infancy. Uh-huh. So. Uh, but the, the daughters are, generally speaking, the oldest ones. So in the late 1820s, uh, they begin to send them off to um, uh, Moscow, where the daughters uh, who are resisting for various reasons the idea of immediately getting getting married um, fall in with this uh, group of students at Moscow University uh-huh. um, who are devotees of what they see as the latest word of European culture, which is German idealism. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, what happens is that as the sisters rotate through Moscow, these uh, German uh, these students who are infatuated with German idealism begin to become fascinated with the Bakunins as kind of exemplars of this noble ideal of exemplary family life. Uh-huh. And they begin to think that my interaction with the Bakunins uh, might be an epoch in my life, one of them. I see, yeah. Uh, and so that really uh, connects the Bakunin, this sort of, this sort of uh, ornate and very documented family life with a, a very um, a powerful new current in Russian intellectual life, mm-hmm. uh, which is idealism. I see, I see. Yeah. And then the idealists, the idealists start to come, and who are they? Could you set the scene for us? Sure. Well, uh, uh, in my book, I, I deal with uh, a group known loosely in Russian history as the Stankiewicz Circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're known that uh, as the Stankiewicz Circle around the leading light of the circle, or what's often seen as the leading person. This is a, a young nobleman named Nikolai Stankiewicz, 
um, who is roughly the age of the young Bakunin children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, he uh, is born, if my memory doesn't deceive me off the top of my head, in 1810, could be 1811, I think it's 1810, however. Um, uh, maybe 1812. You can't quote me on that. Okay, so won't do it. No. Nope. All right, so, so anyway, um, but he comes to Moscow in the late 1820s. Um, he uh, begins to study at the university. And there he's exposed to a very charismatic lecturer, this guy named Nikolai Nadyoshtin, who, um, who is a professor of aesthetics and art, but what he really is is a translator of German philosophers into Russian academic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, the ideals that this man is espousing are the ideas that um, the first thing one needs to do in life is to understand the capabilities of the human mind, mm-hmm. uh, to, to really understand what it is you can know and what it is you can't know, and to sort of build, based on those observations, to build for yourself a firm moral system, mm-hmm. a system of convictions which is based on a sort of realistic assessment of who you are, what you can know, and how the world works. Um, and Bankavich uh, takes this very much to heart, um, and he decides to create that kind of moral system. But what's very unusual about this, this event is that whereas, say, in, Ger- in, in the German-speaking lands where people like Hegel and Fichte and Kant and Schelling had come up with these notions of self-direction through uh, uh, self-discovery, mm-hmm. um, where they had come up with all this in sort of public institutions, universities, giving lectures, working out intensely, uh, technical, philosophical treatises that to this day are impossible for the layman to read. Mm-hmm. Bankiewicz uh, decides to generate all this stuff through his personal relationships, mm-hmm. sort of put his friendships and eventually his love life through that kind of moral calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does so specifically with relations to the Bakunin family. He actually falls in love with one of the Bakunin daughters. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh, and Lubov Makunina, uh-huh. the eldest Makunin daughter, Mikhail Makunin's sister. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, he uh, thereby um, uh, encourages all of his fellows to do the same, to <laughs> yeah. see their personal interactions with the Bakunin family as a way of translating into Russian terms these ideals of, of, of a firm, how to create a firm moral system and, and how to direct oneself without guidance uh-huh. of external authorities. Right, so it's sort of, a, it's, it's sort of applied Kantianism or yeah, something like that. Kantianism. Yes, right. And what, Go ahead. And what traditionally has been seen as important about this Sankiewicz circle is that uh, that ethos of self-direction, uh, the ability to ignore dogma, the ability to ignore hierarchy and the czar, ultimately, to, to imagine yourself as sort of a, a free-roaming historical agent uh-huh whose authority comes from your own sense of where history is headed and what progress is. Not that, from that, that's just the way I think of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. This, this notion um, uh, becomes a key element of intelligentsia culture. Yeah, exactly. And, and really, obviously, also a key element of Russian radicalism. Uh-huh. The first thing you have to do if you want to become a radical is you have to say, well, what the czar thing doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is, is what progress thing. Right. Or, or, uh, and... Uh, or, or what the nation needs, right. uh, or what humanity demands. Right. Uh, and, and for that reason, the Sankiewicz circle is often thought of as well, really the, a, a, a genesis moment in the creation of the intelligence. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what my book then provides is um, a way of saying, well, that may be true, 
but they're also actors within a culture of intimate life, which has roots in the 18th century, which is rooted in imperial values, mm-hmm. and imperial discourses of distinction, and in uh-huh. practice family life. And so these people in the St. Gabriel Circle, they're not just sort of raw expressions of the Russian psyche, mm-hmm. not, you know, which is often how they were talked about for, for a very long time, mm-hmm. which is very, that are still talked about. It's kind of the... Uh, the essential expression of where Russia was in the 1830s. No, mm-hmm. no, no. I don't think that's it. I think that these are people with specific ambitions, mm-hmm. and what distinguishes them is they they fulfill those ambitions in the context of family life yeah. on the stage of noble distinction. Yeah, I, I was going to say I really like that metaphor. I think that really brings what you're trying to say home. That notion of the family as a stage upon which there is a public performance. It is both public and private, and it kind of calls to the American mind the way we think of the Kennedys. They are a yeah. family, and they're performing something public on the family stage. I mean, they we have really entered their family in a way. I mean, you know, I forget, uh, Ted just uh, fell down the stairs or something, and it, it made the press well, immediately. Well, he yeah. unfortunately actually uh, was diagnosed with malignant brain tumor. Is that right? Uh, I just heard. And so, of course, oh, that's terrible. Uh, I wish him the best. Yeah, I but, do too. Uh, yeah, I mean, we are very involved in the Kennedy family, uh, and, and generally the whole idea of first family or royal family, exactly. similar yeah. kinds of concepts, uh-huh. and, um, but these, this is a, a noble family that, that generates that kind of distinction. Yeah, no, I a, think that, that's a stage a, for historical activity. And I think you're, you're quite, it, it's very interesting that, I mean, one of the things I should say, for people who haven't read the book, um, that, 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 this, that the Bakunins are discussed in this kind of way in sort of literary artifacts. People talk about them as right. having this place where you can right. go and people have gone and there is this kind of idyllic life where people live the uh, you know, life of the mind but at the same time live in this kind of locus, you know, locus aminus, this sort of friendly place, right. this, this area of domesticity. And so in that sense, it is kind of exemplary uh, in the 19th century kind of Russian context. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I thought that was really an interesting part about the book and I had never really considered it before. So then I guess we're uh, prepared to answer your uh, big question, and that is why so much of what we uh, think about as Russian intellectual culture is bound up with this intimate circle. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think there are two ways of approaching it. The traditional way would be to say, well, there were no public venues. Yeah, that's what that's what came to mind when I thought about it. Yeah, right. There are, no, there are no newspapers, which of course is not quite true, but there are a few newspapers, there are a few journals, there are highly controlled universities, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's, of course, some dollop of justice to that. I think in particular why that's important is that it means that when historians went to write the history of this era, they didn't have those sources. Yeah, use. that's right. So I think that's important. Um, but that having been said, you know, um, I think we have to be careful from assuming that because uh, there was a lack of one thing, something else had to happen. Right? Mm-hmm. In other words, I think it's important to look at the other half of the equation and say, well, how did private life mm-hmm. emerge as a sphere of distinction, mm-hmm. historical agency, mm-hmm. memory? You know, how was it that, that you could get charisma and become a thinker? You, know, you could have sort of status in society as a thinker based on your analysis of your personal life. Exactly. And, uh, the yeah. application, how was that? And I think here what is been the biggest discovery for me is that it reminds us that however alienated these men may or may not have been from imperial Russian culture, and of mm-hmm. course because uh, many of them become radicals, 
it's the tendency to think that sort of from the get-go or, or in the right. genesis, they were they, their their birth is due to their profound alienation. Mm-hmm. However alienated they were from imperial Russian culture, nonetheless they depended on deeply imperial institutions to achieve their agency mm-hmm. society. So in other words, uh, they need that noble charisma. Mm-hmm to become the kind of social actors, the kind of social performers they become. Mm -hmm. And indeed, many of their founding ideals are not so much reactions against the empire, but simply adoptions of imperial discourse yeah. of their own. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, you know, the whole cult of family life, as I mentioned, is something that I think is, is very much supported by the throne, not only in the reign of Catherine, but also, and for different reasons, uh, during the reign of Nicholas the First, yeah, no question about it. Reactionaries yeah. are, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. yeah, no question so, about it. So my, I guess what I what I would hope would come out of my book is that that um, we need to to remember that the intelligentsia, the 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 the, 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 the charismatic authority that thinkers have within Russian Russian culture is not just produced by the fact that they were outsiders but actually is produced by the fact that they drew on so many of the imperial resources, things that the empire itself created. Uh-huh. Um, but, of course, they just took them in a very different direction. Yes, no, that's or, exactly or right. It, and, you know, or not. You know, sometimes they didn't, actually. Sometimes these values, imperial values, imperial hierarchies, are, are things that remain to their dying day uh-huh. part of their persona. You know, like, one of the moments is quite interesting. There's a... When Mikhail Bakunin, the anarchist... Um, dies in 1876, after a lengthy career in which you know, he loses his teeth on the Peter Paul prisoner, <laughs> and, yeah. and so he's he declared enemy number one by basically all of the states of Europe. Uh-huh. Um, when he dies in 1876, there's a, a Russian socialist on hand to watch him. And what she is immediately struck by is that to his dying day, even as Italian shoemakers are daily coming to his villa to um, to clean his dying body, basically, mm-hmm. care for him as as he decays before their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, even as in those circumstances, no one to his dying day he never loses the air of having been a nobleman. Mm-hmm. Part of his mystique is the fact that here is a nobleman who has aligned himself with progress. Here is a gentleman who is also a radical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's hmm. a way in which, you know, he's a very imperial kind of actor to mm-hmm. his dying day, yeah. even though he's enemy number one of the empire, right. and um, uh, uh, and is often thought of as the most renegade of Russian subjects. Right. That's a remarkable and compelling scene. I, it's 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 quite it's, it's very vivid and well drawn. I, I liked it very much. Well, you know, we've taken up a, a ton of your time, and we're very appreciative of that. Um, but Thank I would you. like to, I would like to close with one question. What uh, are you working on now? I'm working on something totally different. Good. <laughs> um, I guess the story I like to tell is that having spent uh, quite a bit of time in very intimate relations with this one family, uh-huh. uh, I decided to hit the road. Uh-huh. So what I am now doing is I'm writing a book about, uh, it's called The Singing Coachman and the Society of the Road in the Early Russian Empire. Huh. And what it's about is that it's about uh, this uh, social class uh, called the the coach class or the yimshiki in Russian. Uh-huh. Uh, these are serfs who are settled along certain roads and given the obligation yeah. of ferrying officials and also paid travelers between these villages uh-huh. of 
of caring for the horses, of driving the horses, um, and thereby creating the mobility upon which the Mm. Russian Empire depends. What a great topic. And so what I'm looking at is them, their lives, the culture they made possible. That's a great topic. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, these these guys exist in the 16th and 17th century as well. Right. I mean, they're yeah. Well, they're, a, it's speculated that they're a Mongol institution. Yama, so yeah. The Mongol Empire, inherited by Muscovy as it expands. Yeah, no, exactly. No, it's, so it's a very old institution, and it continues almost to the revolution. It's a, it's a terrific topic. I, you know, I, you. I congratulate you on the selection, and I look forward to reading the book. Well, John Randolph, thank you very much for talking to us today. The book is. Um, the House in the Garden, The Bakunin Family, and the Romance of Russian Idealism. It's recently been published by, who's the publisher? Cornell, Cornell isn't it? Yeah, Cornell University Press. Anyway, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks. Thank you, Marshall. All right, thanks a lot, John. You've been listening to an interview with John Randolph, the author of The House in the Garden, The Bakunin Family, and the Romance of Russian Idealism. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and we hope to talk to you next week. Take care.